Hey everybody, welcome back to the Hope Recovered podcast. We're so glad you're here for our second episode. Today we have Diane Sherrod and Sarah Mays here with us. You heard from Sarah a little bit in our trailer, but Diane, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are? Hey, good morning, everybody. I am so excited to be a part of this podcast. I really am. I appreciate so much Kristen and all my team being able to look for different platforms to get the message out that we do recover. So I just might start out just letting you know, I am a person in long-term recovery. I got sober September 9th, 2003. And what I'd like to say about my story is that when you think about someone who suffers from alcoholism or drug addiction, you don't really think that it's someone who had an ideal childhood or was born and raised in church in a good home without any alcoholism or drug addiction. That was me. I was actually adopted by two of the finest people I have ever known. They were good parents. They provided well for me and my brother and my sister. And I never had any real need for anything. They provided everything that we needed. We didn't have a lot, but we had all that we needed. But one thing is, I think being adopted somehow give me an idea that I did not belong. I was not part of something. You know, when I got older and I got to thinking about my parents said that I was chosen, that I was special, but I just didn't really see that as I got older and I kind of felt inadequate. You know, a lot of times you'll hear people who tell their stories in 12-step fellowships that they just didn't feel like they were enough. They didn't feel like they fit in. And that was true for me. But the truth is, we had a great childhood and I didn't take my first drink until I was 13 years old and I was actually at a family member's house. My cousin and her brothers, they were like, they were a little more liberal in terms of the way that they lived and they drank beer and they rode motorcycles and they did things that just wasn't really something that I saw much of in my environment. So it was fascinating for me to see these people. I remember my, my cousin and I were the same age and It was funny because her mom let her wear like those little hip hugger jeans, you know, that have the bell bottoms and the little crop tops, right, where your tummy showed. My mother would never allow any part of my skin to show before my elbows. And so it was very, it was, it was like a new experience for me to be able just to go to her house, try on her clothes put on dangly earrings. My mom would never allow me to wear dangly earrings because she was always so afraid someone was going to snatch my ears off. And so it was just like, I, I go from a very sheltered environment to an environment where I can literally be anything I want. And when you think about the clothes and the jewelry and the makeup, you know, I was able to wear all the makeup I wanted and I just turned into this person. And then when we would go into the living room where her older brothers were having a party and there was liquor everywhere, we would just kind of walk around and snatch a little bottle of this or a little can of that. And we would take it back in our rooms and we would just drink it. And I remember that first feeling that once it first started hitting me, the effect of alcohol on my brain, I remember thinking all of my inhibitions went away. All of my fears just fell from me. I was able to talk to the boys. I was able to be funny. I had funny jokes all of a sudden. Suddenly I could dance. Suddenly I could sing. I couldn't do any of these things before I took my first drink. But man, it was just an amazing little magic trick that gave me so much confidence. 
to be able to be someone that I wasn't. And I remember thinking that I was going to find a way to do that every chance I got. So when I think about as I went on trying to be something I wasn't, one thing that stands out for me is my inability to be honest. I developed a real trick at telling lies to make me look better or make me look like I was someone else from a very early age. My ability to manipulate came in very strong. It seemed like every time I told a lie and I got away with that lie, my ability to manipulate got stronger and my confidence got stronger. It got to the point where my dishonesty was so paramount that I would tell a lie when the truth would have been better. It got to the point where I wouldn't be able to tell the, the truth from the false, if that makes sense. It's like when I said it, it became the truth. And for someone who has had alcoholism and drug addiction, we all know that we really cannot be honest with that lifestyle. We can't tell people the truth about that type of lifestyle because we don't want it to be found out. We don't want anyone to know that we're secretly over here self-medicating just to survive. And that was the case for me. I drank for many years. It worked for me. I actually worked at a job where drinking was acceptable. We had social occasions where we would go and drink. We would drink after work. But I will say this, I became pregnant, my son, after I was married for about four years. And once I found out I was pregnant, our literature tells us that we can stop or moderate if we're given a substantial reason. And that was the truth for me. I was able to stop drinking when I found out I was pregnant. I stopped drinking Cokes. I stopped eating chili. I stopped eating foods that were bad for me. I was, I started wearing my seatbelt. All these things happened to me when I found out I was pregnant because I wanted to be a good mother. And I had the ability to do that because I had not crossed over into the line of alcoholism yet. So I remember when he was about two years old, I was thinking to myself that this has been a great thing, that I'm a great mom, that I've provided well for my son. I was in a good marriage, I thought. So I wanted to celebrate. I wanted to be able to celebrate all these great deeds that I accomplished. And so I started going out to drink again with my friends. And I started spending time in the bars after work and drinking more and more. And then I it started causing problems at home. I started having to lie and make excuses about I would rather be here with my friends drinking than home with my son and my husband. Alcohol seemed to take over from that point. It became a very, very strong priority in my life a priority stronger than my son or my marriage. The one thing that I can say about my childhood and my parents and my family, I was very family oriented. We have a very strong, large family and we were all very close. There wasn't a day that didn't go by that I didn't talk to my mom and dad or visit them, but I was able to keep this a secret or at least I thought I could. And my mom fell ill. So this was a period of about six months to a year where she was increasingly getting worse. She actually had rheumatoid arthritis and she was on medications that honestly were almost as crippling as the disease. And she wasn't able to go and drive and do things like she used to. And it, it became very debilitating for her. And it was very difficult for me to watch that. So when she was put in the hospital for several things that were going wrong with her immune system, I spent every day with her and then I would go out and drink just to get over the feeling of loss and grief that I could just feel welling up in me. It was terrifying, the thought of losing my mom. And then one day when she finally passed, 
All I remember is that everything that was normal to me, everything that felt solid and good and familiar to me in my world suddenly just went by the wayside and I was in a just a dark, dark place that I could not overcome. The grief was just too much. So I drank more and more and more and I found that that wasn't working anymore. So that's when I started to experiment in other drugs. And all I can say is that God has an interesting way of showing us what we need or what we don't need in order to get to the place that we need, need to be for him. I had a very strong relationship with God that was developed through the love for my parents and my family. We prayed before every meal. We had daily devotions. We read our Bibles and prayed before we went to sleep. It was a very strong connection. But the more I drank and the more I used drugs, that connection seemed farther and farther away. 16 months after my mom died, my dad passed away suddenly from a heart attack. And it's like I was re-traumatized all over again. And even then, whatever substances I was using did not seem to work. So it turns out that I was just anything I could get my hands on. The clinical term is a polysubstance user, and I was definitely that. My husband had divorced me. I had given my son away to him, and I was able to justify that because my ex-husband was a good man, and I knew he would provide a good home for my son. And the truth was, he just got in the way of what my lifestyle had turned into. I got caught up in the wrong crowd. I started using every day. I was no longer employable. I lost my job. I cashed out my 401ks. There was money that came through after my father passed away, and I, uh, I, I blew through that pretty quickly. And then I found myself living with the drug dealers in the dark with no electricity, 85 pounds, and near death. I was actually involved in a car accident that sent me to the emergency room, and my ex-husband came there, and he said, you're going to have to get some help because you're going to die. And I, I really did. I knew that to be true, but to hear it from someone who I knew cared about me and cared about what happened to me, I finally realized that maybe I should do something. So it didn't happen that quickly for me. I ended up going to jail a lot. I remember detoxing on the floor of the jail, which was a horrible experience. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. And I remember thinking, how do I overcome this? I'm using what I don't want to use. I've made promises to my family that I would get help. And I knew that those promises were empty because I didn't want to stop using. But when I started making promises to myself that no one else knew about, and I couldn't even keep those, that's when I knew I was in trouble. So when I kept going to jail and I was placed on probation and I knew I'd have to go meet my probation officer and someone would show up with drugs the night before and I would use the night before and I would fail the drug test and I would be violated. And my probation officer was very, very upset with me because I just couldn't seem to draw a sober breath. All I had at that time was a list of treatment centers that someone had given me and I would call these treatment centers and I would say, I need help. And they would say, do you have insurance. And I would say no, because at this point, I couldn't even pay the light bill at my house. And I wasn't working. I was unemployable. And no, I didn't have insurance. So it was very difficult for me to navigate my way through a treatment program or even a treatment plan. There was no one there to help me with that. But thankfully, I was able to finally get to treatment, come back to a 12-step fellowship. And thankfully, was able to find my way to recovery and sobriety. And 
my experience in a 12-step fellowship was a wonderful thing. Those people saved my life and I will be forever grateful for good sponsorship and a good fellowship here in Jackson, Tennessee. The meetings here at that time were very strong. And I was able to eventually, over the course of about three years, finally get sober and get established in a different lifestyle that didn't involve drinking or using drugs. When I think about the power of God and the power of how he can recreate our lives in a mighty way, he was able to restore my relationship with my family, particularly with my son, who I had no hope of ever getting back with him. We have a great relationship now. I have beautiful granddaughters that have never seen their DD impaired, and I'm grateful for that. And I've been able to use my lived experience to move into this line of work with the, the Lifeline Peer Project. And I just want to say something about the resources that we have in our community now versus what we had in 2003 when I got sober. The Lifeline Peer Project is people with lived experience who have gone through drug addiction or mental health recovery, and they now have a way of life on which they can rely. And for people with lived experience to be able to meet other people who might be struggling with substance misuse or mental health issues and to be able to say, I remember going through what you're going through right now. I remember that desperation and despair to not be able to get clean or sober. And I have resources that I can share with you that will help you find a new way to live. There's so much power in being able to do that. Because if I had had that when I first tried to get sober, I'm pretty sure my lived experience wouldn't have been as long as it was. But I'm grateful for what I got when I got it. And I'm grateful that I'm now in a position to be able to open my arms and open my resources to people who have once felt just the same way that I did. And I'm so grateful to have a great team through the West Tennessee Healthcare Foundation. We have the Lifeline Peer Project. We also have the Recovery Navigator Program, which is the same as the Lifeline Peer Project, only there are people with lived experience that are stationed in our emergency rooms all across West Tennessee. And they're able to meet people who come in with substance use disorder or overdose and provide them with resources to get them help. We also follow up with those people for six months or longer to make sure that they're getting all the resources that they need. And it's just been a real good addition to the programs that our state has provided. We also have the State Opioid Response Grant, which is a harm reduction program that provides Narcan for people at high-risk areas, high-risk motels, high-risk families. And the efforts in that program have been staggering when we think about over 15,000 lives last year alone recovered from a fatal overdose through Narcan distribution, and they now have a second chance at recovery. So honestly, I think the most important message that we can put out today is that we do recover and that we do have resources in our communities that are able to link us to the resources that we need. And if it weren't for people with lived experience who are able to meet these people where they are, to walk with them through their recovery journey and to allow them, if they fall short or if they relapse, they can always come back. And that's one thing that is the biggest part of our, our work as people with lived experience, that we can hopefully share our story and help people understand the stigma is alive and well. The people who think that drug addiction is a moral failing have it all wrong. They need to understand that we are humans first the condition of substance abuse comes later. And it's the same as a condition of diabetes 
or hypertension or any other medical problem. This is a brain disease that affects us in a way that we cannot overcome on our own. We have to have help. We have to have resources. And thankfully, we work. Kristen, Sarah, and I work for organizations that allow us to provide these resources to help people recover. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that, Diane. I always love hearing your story. I never get tired of it. It's just amazing to think how, like you were saying, how you went from being unemployable to now it is your life's passion. And you see that in everything you do to help people go from where you were and find recovery and that you are able to use your story to do that is incredible. Thank and I, you. I love seeing that. Tell us a little bit more about how stigma has impacted your work and how now being in recovery, how you face that stigma. Well, first of all, when I was going through what I was going through, when I knew that I had a problem and I wasn't sure how to, to overcome it, I, there was so much shame and guilt. There was so much shame and guilt originally when I first started drinking and I first started using drugs and I knew it wasn't the life I needed to live. And I, I knew that I had to continue to lie and be dishonest just to cover up what was going on. And stigma made me do that. Stigma is what created the shame and guilt because my people, my congregation, my family, nobody understood what it meant to have a disease of the brain that made me make choices that I would not otherwise make if I wasn't impaired. I, I didn't know that. It was only through treatment and recovery resources after I got sober that I was able to learn more about why I did the things I did. So the stigma, unless you have someone who has gone through something like this, and unless you've lived it yourself, you're really not going to understand what stigma is and why people sometimes feel the way they do. When someone thinks it's a moral failing for someone to use drugs or abuse drugs and that they're making choices every time they do that, that is someone who is uninformed and does not have the right information to understand the brain disease that's going on with their loved one. And I meet that every day through my work. I meet these family members every day. And what a gift it is to be able to say, your loved one doesn't want to be this way. They're doing the best they can with what they have. They're not making these choices. They've lost their power to choose. They're, the drugs are choosing for them. It's almost like a survival skill that they're having to use just to be able to get through the day. Particularly with, uh, you know, I'm going to be real honest when it comes to stigma. And um, that's one thing I'm so grateful for is our faith-based initiative. Amy Bechtel, our West Tennessee faith-based coordinator, is doing a fantastic job raising awareness and reducing stigma in our congregations. And I think that has only come about as a part of her work, but also family members of people in congregations were presenting in their, in their churches and their congrega congregations with these problems, right? They were, they were saying, I'm addicted to opioids and I don't know how to get off. And I don't know how to stop. I'm using, I'm having to take pills when I don't want to take pills to avoid this uh, horrible fetal position, bone crushing withdrawal that's going on. And if the family member doesn't understand what's happening to their, their loved one, and all they see is they have this withdrawal symptom and then suddenly they're better. And then they have the withdrawal symptom and suddenly they're better. And they're thinking they're just like sick with the flu or got a cold or some, you know, physiological thing going on. 
But for us to be able to say, no, they are they are withdrawing because they're addicted to opiates. And the only thing that's going to take those, those withdrawal symptoms away is one more pill. So they were able to get one more pill. And that's the reason they feel better. Because one thing we need to understand about painkillers, particularly in, in our society today, painkillers do not kill pain. They mask pain. The pain returns when the medication wears off. And if you have a loved one who's addicted to painkillers, it's only a temporary fix to a permanent problem if they don't get the help they need to completely get off those medications. And sometimes even the street drugs like heroin. So the stigma follows us in every realm, um, in, our, in our work, in our congregations, in our social life. These are places that hopefully we are going to be able to get people to understand and inform and educate these people in these particular forums and congregations and workplaces that if you have a loved one who's suffering from a substance abuse disorder, then learn all you can. And particularly now with all the platforms we have virtually, all the webinars and online trainings and stuff that we can learn more about just to be able to understand addiction and the science behind addiction. You know, these are all solid efforts to reduce the stigma, something that was not going on when I got sober, something that was not available. And it's up to us as a community to educate people who, who make statements that are stigmatizing, to understand that, you know, what, you're uninformed. You don't understand what's really going on. Let me help you understand. Let me share some information with you. It might help you understand how to deal with your loved one or your neighbor or your coworker. And I love the way you do that by sharing your story as well, because that is not a judgmental or shaming. You don't understand. Yeah. It's a, let me show you what I went through to help yeah. you understand what your loved one's going through. Part of prevention is education. And that's, you know, I work primarily in prevention. And so part of that is working to reduce stigma as well as is preventing the next generation from, from falling into substance misuse and abuse. And one of my favorite analogies to explain the disease of addiction to, and, and, and it's really simple um, because I use this with middle schoolers. And so I tell them, you know, your body tells you what you need. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I generally ask, well, well, what is it? How does it tell you that you're thirsty? How does it tell you that you need water? Well, my mouth gets dry. I, I start to get a headache maybe if it's really bad, but okay. So, so you drink water and what happens? You don't feel that anymore. It gets better. And, and that's your body's natural way of hydrating itself. So, well, what happens if instead of water, you go for a soda? Well, then you feel really good because you get that sugar and you get that caffeine. Right. And then the next time you're thirsty, what does your brain tell you? Oh, I want a soda. Because not only does it, does it quench that thirst, at least momentarily, it also gives you that rush of sugar and caffeine. And so what you're doing there is you're rewriting those pathways where your body thinks it needs water. It tells you it needs soda. And it's something that they can understand because they've all experienced. That's Uh, absolutely true. I had never looked at it like that, but that is awesome. And 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 with alcohol, if they were to upgrade to alcohol, yeah, first drink of alcohol and that feeling that you get, and everyone can describe that. Well, people who are prone to alcoholism can describe it as a feeling of just, just goodness and, mm-hmm. and ease and comfort. And, and that's essentially why they continue to drink is right. for that feeling of ease and comfort. 
And so when your body starts to tell you that that's what you need, instead of, I mean, we think of water as this basic survival necessity, when your body starts to tell you that that's what you need, instead of the things you need to survive, then we kind of start to think, oh, well, I understand. Because if I didn't have water, I would die. Right. If my brain told me I needed alcohol instead of needing water, you still have that same urgency of if I don't get this, I will die. Right. And then you start to understand how it's a need and it's not a choice. Right. It's it's your body reacting to the chemicals and it's your brain building these pathways of reward and pleasure. And it's Mm. something I can explain to middle schoolers. It makes perfect sense. And the same with food. Mm-hmm. I know with uh, uh, there's a lot of stigma around uh, pregnant women who might continue to use, particularly like opiates. If you're addicted to opiates, becoming pregnant is not going to take away that addiction to opiates. So yeah. it's not something that you can put down. In fact, it's harmful. It's dangerous if you try to put a, an addictive substance like an opioid down if you become pregnant and you're addicted. And Dr. Stephen Lloyd is a wonderful, he's, you know, he's done a lot of great webinars that have helped reduce stigma. And one of the things he says is that he's, he is a doctor who treats um, women, particularly pregnant women who are addicted to opioids. And he says a lot of people just come up to him and say, why can't they quit for their child? Why can't they stop for their unborn child? Surely that's enough reason for them to put that down. And he says, you know what, that's a really good idea. I'm going to ask you to stop eating for a week and then come back and tell me how that worked for you, Mm -hmm. because that's going to be exactly what you're asking them to do. They need it to survive the same way you need food to survive. And that's, you know, your pathways are just, that's, that's the way that they are. You're not able to overcome that on your own. And if people will understand that it's not a choice they're making, they're doing it to survive because they cannot be without that drug, without a medical a clinical detox where they are observed and medically treated. That's a powerful analogy too. So kind of want to segue a little bit here. And Sarah is the other half of your team here in Southwest Tennessee. And so she is also working to get people into treatment and help break stigma. And she uses her own story, but that that looks a little bit different and it's going to look different depending on, I mean, across the state we have, we have lifeliners in every region and, and each one works a little bit differently because their story is different. Sarah, do you want to kind of go into that and then maybe how your story is different or how you found recovery? Yeah, absolutely. So, hey, everybody. And we're on Zoom because it's uh, snow in the South. So, you know, we can't go anywhere or do anything. But I, I'm Sarah and uh, God has delivered me from abundance of things, anxiety, depression, substance misuse, sexual abuse, codependency, and just bad decisions in general. And I'm grateful for that every day. And I was thinking about what I wanted to say about recovery and I'm a stepmama. And so I always think about my stepson because he's mine and he's gotten into this thing where he has this beautiful imagination And he loves to take a blank piece of paper and he just takes his marker or pen or whatever. And there's always a clear defining starting point on that paper where he starts with his pen. But then he just takes his pen and makes all these crazy marks and lines and draws these crazy squiggles. And then he'll tell me about this journey he went on. And so, like I said, there's always this clear defining starting point. 
but he'll go up his hill and he'll be like, oh, here's the park and, and here's the dragon. And it's just like this looping journey that he goes on. And there's never really a stopping point on this. And he might start over and it'll be different. And that got me thinking about recovery too, how there's usually a starting point. It may not be a specific one thing, but there's usually things that you can point out where things started to go downhill. But the journey is different for everybody. There's going to be different hills, different loops, different turns. And there's never really an ending because recovery is a journey throughout your life. I mean, you can be recovered, but you're always going to be in recovery. You're always going to be working your steps, working that journey, working to become better. And that's how I feel about recovery. We're all different. We all have different stories. They may be similar, but there's always difference. There's always going to be something that's different, but it's a journey for everybody and it's different. When I think about recovery, that just, it, that's what it brought to my mind. And it made me think about my own story as I was thinking about that picture that he drew because I have one on my refrigerator that I look at all the time and he drew it in blue paint. And I was just thinking about it today because specifically with that picture, I have a cross that he painted hanging with it. So it's just, it was very symbolic to me because I can kind of say like Diane, when I was growing up, I had a great family. I mean, I still do. My family is wonderful and I consider them a huge part of my support system now. And, you know, I had a great childhood. We went to church. We were in church whenever the church doors were open. They were at all my events, supportive, gave me everything I wanted. But I always felt different. I always had a little bit of a rebellious heart. And y'all, God made me that way. He wanted me to have a rebellious heart. That's how I get things done. But I always felt different. And I never felt like I was enough. I structured my life on making sure that everybody else was happy. I wanted to do exactly what, nobody asked me to do that. But I wanted to do that. I wanted to make sure everybody around me was happy and that's how I was happy. If everybody else was taken care of, I was good. Even if I was miserable, if everybody else was happy, I was too. I can remember when I was 14, I was having a lot of different issues uh, physically and my mom took me to the doctor. And I can remember talking to the doctor about depression and anxiety and starting a medication at that point. But that was really it. I never really went to a counselor. I never really talked about what that meant to have depression or anxiety. And I never talked to my parents about it or my friends. I had a group of friends and I love them to this day. And if they're listening to this podcast, I hope they don't think that I don't because I do. But I didn't feel connected to them. There was a huge disconnect. I didn't feel, even though I was always part of the group, I never felt like I was actually part of that group. So I always just felt kind of out in left field. I was always really shy because I have had really bad body image. I've always been chunky and I love myself that way now. Then that was, you know, you did not, you wanted to be a size zero, like all your friends, you know, and I was never a size zero. And also, so that was going on. I had bad self-esteem, didn't really feel connected. I was taking this medicine for depression and anxiety, but I really didn't know what that meant. And church was a huge part of my life. But while church was a huge part of my life, it was more of the religion, more than my connection with God. I would go to church and I would sit in the pews and I would be scared to death because I thought that everything I was doing was wrong and was going to send me to hell. And I thought that I wasn't good enough for God because I had anxiety and I worried and I, and I had depression. So I thought I was, you know, I thought 
I wasn't worthy of God and I wasn't worthy of heaven. And so I was sitting there scared to death and not really having a connection with God like I wanted. So fast forward through, you know, high school and, and, you know, high school is crazy anyways. In high school is when I started partying. And the first time that I drank was when I was a junior and I went out with a bunch of friends and I drank for the first time. And I can remember this different Sarah came out. I was funny and I was lively and I was the life of the party. And then everybody wanted to start hanging out with me and I felt connected to people for the first time. And it was awesome. And I wasn't worried anymore. I did that on into college and going to college. I was a social work major. I wanted to help people. And that's part of my codependency a little bit. I think I wanted to fix people when I was going to school. Now I know that that's not what it's about, but I did the regular college thing, right? Because you know, in college, you're supposed to party and have a great time and that's what was advertised. So I would party and do my school work. And this whole time I was miserable, but I never told anybody that because I'm supposed to be happy. I'm supposed to be doing good. I can't bother people with my stuff. Nobody should have to worry about that. When things really took a turning point for me was I um, was at a party one night and I will be candid about this. This is, I'm nervous. Because um, some of this information I haven't shared in a public format before, only with close people. But there was a night where I was out at a party and having so much fun and not paying attention. And I was sexually assaulted um, that night. And um, when I woke up, I knew it. It wasn't anything. I don't remember specifically. I remember different details, but I don't. I remember waking up knowing what had happened. and I knew I couldn't report that, right? Because I had been drinking, so I deserve that. And I had been told that too by people in my church. People in my church had made comments about, uh, you know, if women do certain things and act a certain way, then they deserve that kind of thing. So there was no way I was going to report it. So I didn't. I just kept it a secret. But then I remember things got really bad. I was very depressed. I was suicidal. I stopped eating. And nobody noticed for a long time. And, you know, I wasn't living at home. I was living with friends. So I was going through all that and nobody really noticed. And I I, I hit it really well because I'm supposed to be okay for everybody, right? You've got to be okay for everybody else. And I was, I wasn't living at home. So my parents really had no way of, of noticing that. And I just thought eventually, because I didn't believe in killing myself because, and this is a different topic, but if you commit suicide, you can't go to heaven, right? And I'm being, I'm being sarcastic with that, but that's what I was, had been led to believe by my church. And so I thought eventually I'll, if I don't take care of myself, I will just, I'll die and I don't have to deal with this anymore. It can just be gone away. People won't have to deal with me. I didn't feel worthy anyways. And so I thought it'd just be better off. Nobody cares. And I can remember very vividly one night I was by myself. I was crying. I was in my bed and I can remember a peace coming over me and I could, I could hear God telling me that I was worthy. And it was something that I'll never forget because it was a peace that I have never experienced before. And that I will probably, I don't know if I'll ever experience it again, but it was a beautiful moment. And even though I still struggled after that, I think it was a huge turning point for me because it was the first time that I had really ever felt worthy. And it felt enough. And I knew that the direction I was 
in needed to change. But not long after that, I also had a social work professor who reached out to me and she said, look, this is not you. I don't know what's going on, but I wish you would tell me because I know you're not yourself. And I give her a lot of credit for turning things around for me. She helped point me in the direction of student health and student counseling. And I went the next day and they, what you have to do when you go to student health is sit down at a computer and take this quiz. So I took this really long quiz, answered a bunch of questions and left. And they called me later that day and said, we need you to come back in immediately because this test you took shows you at really high risk. So I went to counseling from there, did several counseling sessions, and I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder with manic episodes, and which is now considered bipolar disorder. And um, it makes so much sense now because I think back to when I would do these big projects and take on big community projects and, and do big things. And those were my manic episodes because I was staying up all night and getting all this stuff done. And I was awesome, but I really wasn't awesome. And so I started my counseling. I started some different medication and things just, they got better from there. But one thing was missing, which was my relationship with God, because I still had my religion that I, I clung to for so long because that's all I knew, but I did not have that connection. So over the years, I kept doing my counseling and I kept working on myself and loving myself. It took a long time for me to, to love me because I made a lot of bad decisions. I was in a lot of abusive relationships, mentally and emotionally, and I was so wrapped up in making everybody else happy that I didn't even know who I was. I had no idea. So it took me years to get on track to find who I was, to find out what I liked, what I liked to do, and just to, to be myself. And then I was able to, through that and during that time, work on my relationship with God. And that, that in itself has been what has saved me from everything. And that's not the same journey for everybody. And that's okay. Some people don't have that belief. Some people believe just in a higher power. Some people don't believe in God at all. And that's okay. I think my main point is that when I was at my lowest, there was always a ray of hope. There was always this light. I was talking to a friend earlier and we went to school together. We grew up together, but we didn't know each other. And I was talking to her a little bit about my anxiety and depression. And she said, I would have never known that. And then she was talking about hers too. And we were talking about how, you know, we wished that, you know, we wonder how things would have been different if our teachers would have called on that, that soon, or if our parents would have called on sooner, but I'm, I'm almost glad things didn't because I don't know that my life would be the same as it is now. And I love my life now. We were talking about how this year, these past like year, and then 2021 hasn't started out with a bang, you know, but how it's been kind of rough, but there's always a light. And that's what I, if I can instill in just one person that even in the darkest times of your life, there is always some kind of hope. There's always a light, whether it's God or, or whatever it is for you, it's there. And we just, we want to help you. That's what we're here for, to help you find it. And like I said, if it's just one person that I can get that message through to, then I've done what I need to do. That's a little bit of, a little bit about my story. There's so many details that I could say, but I just wanted to highlight the main parts to get to the point of, of hope and what it is for me and what it can be for you too. And that's really what I see you sharing 
when you're doing your work with the Lifeline Peer Project is you're going out and showing people, I felt hopeless, but now I have this hope. Someone helped me find my hope. And you're able to use that to help others. And so that's kind of our goal here with the podcast as well, is that if you can hear our stories, you listen to last week's episode and you heard mine and Amy's stories, you hear Sarah's and Diane's today, that, that what you can see is that the, you know, our stories all look really different. You know, we have similarities, but we have differences too. But the, the common denominator of it all is that we have hope. And I think that's, that's something that we really just want to share with you all. And we didn't find that hope at the same place or at the same time. And I think it's, it's something that, you know, it's an individual journey. As we say, recovery is a journey and it's an individual journey, but we can find hope in hearing from each other as well. Sarah, I was listening to you too and you did a great job. You did a great job. I just love you and I just love your recovery and I love everything that you stand for. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Hope Recovered Podcast. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, leave us a comment. We would love to hear from you. We'd love to engage with you. Reach out to us on social media. You can reach us at jmprevent on Instagram or the Jackson Madison Prevention Coalition on Facebook. We'd love to interact with you. Let us know what you think. I look up and see your little halo and your pizza. We're playing with Zoom virtual setting. <laughs> Thank you for your patience with us. We are in the South and we have a foot of snow. And that means our, our recording quality is not as great because we're having to play with Zoom. And also we get distracted by things like pizza hats and <laughs> alien faces. <laughs> And always the last thing we want to leave you with is just remember, we do recover. We do recover. We do recover.